You know, there's a famous cliche phrase, the more things change, the more they stay the same. In today's moment, it feels to me that the more things change, the more obvious things become. And by nature of being obvious, are harder to see. Technology and information go so hand in hand with human nature, it's obviously oblivious to us that it's the basis of our whole lives. Our whole culture is wrapped up within those two. The environment around our human community influences the people within it, which then in turn affects what technologies they have to produce and what information they come by in that pursuit. So this inevitably will lead them to pull and be pulled by how they have to interact with humans that are outside of their community. New rivals, rising empires, strange explorers, or allies. All of these can arise at any time. Same with failure events, failures of leadership, or natural disaster. Distilling it all down to four parts for brevity, and to construct a shorthand for you listening, these are some of the main pillars to think about when considering any real study of a person or a group of people. The environment of nature and people within and without their community. Technology that the group has and in comparison to their needs. Information exchange and cultivation of new ideas. Before lastly, the culture that's involving over time alongside all of those three factors. Within these four are large gradients in the structure of reality as we see it. Because our actual view of reality isn't one of fact, but one where we boil down and finally see our world as a narrative, not the truth of it. It's far easier to remember in story form. Our brains have wired themselves to think in that way, but then if we really break it down, that story is only fragments to hurry along towards a point. In thinking and narrative, we get tied up and commit to memory the message of that story, and we take it as the whole truth of the person or people. And that narrative may or may not even be real. It's easy when seeing other fragments of a story to become reactive emotionally to it both positively in awe in some unknown aspect of history, or, well, honestly, history is full of repulsive things. I won't even list any. The comments alone could spark some. Those repulsive events, though, were done by beings no different out of the gate than you listening or me speaking. Some gradient of the environment at their time, tied with their technology they had up against it, knowledge and how to interpret and leverage it with a culture to support it it ended up creating the people and circumstances that those repulsive events occurred and in some ways were a likely outcome except for the chance of our circumstance we're able to exist here with our norms instead of those of some other time whether it's magellan moving around the world with wind or Caesar conquering an empire from within. Understanding how to interpret that time with our eyes is useful, I think essential, as an exercise in understanding that can be used for any number of things. From understanding the differences in culture or even ideas, 
from Flat Earth and QAnon to the country of Sweden versus Indonesia. All of us today are far closer to each other than we are to those in our past. Even a QAnon shaman and a Swedish designer. Or as our guest for this episode, Felipe Fernandez Armesto puts it, quote, no chasm of culture is as big as what divides the past from the present. One of the main figures for this interview is around Felipe's new book on Magellan. The book's titled Straits, Beyond the Myth of Magellan, where during the interview we uncover how in all the collective judgment on the past, we've missed the mark on someone who immortalized themselves fantastically to mask their horrific crimes. Even for his contemporary day, Magellan was quite the criminal. In an episode of Douglas Murray's podcast called Uncancelled History, Felipe's episode in that series serves as a great juxtaposition between Magellan and Columbus, which he only briefly explains in this episode. However, in that one, he explains the relatively moderate ideas of Columbus compared to his time, and the rather extreme criminality of Magellan. If you want more on that, that is a great supplement to this conversation. However, for this interview, we focus on how to view those in our past, and how they best be judged in opposition to their own time, not ours. In doing so, gross acts still appear gross, but the same with standards against our norms. However trivial and normal they may seem to us now, or grossly inept they may be. Seeing these acts within the context of their time gives us a much deeper understanding of them all. With the influx of information at our present moment, with a culture that will always be too slow to adapt to our change, let alone our current pace of change, understanding fact from fiction can become a full-time job. A possibly helpful idea that comes out of this conversation is to question the source of the information, and if what's presented benefits that source. Comparing that source with another and another and another, over time a better understanding will start to take shape. Put simply, when looking at a source, motive matters, and it colors one's truth. If it's an example how the knowledge only that person knows or seemingly has to offer, it should cause pause. Earth-shattering knowledge should be easily found and held not just by one character, who it likely benefits. This benefit, though, can get often wrapped into a compelling story that can lull us into a means of taking their story as fact and taking it as an exciting model of reality. This can go for a lot of things, like if the knowledge being presented by an individual or group and what their motives may be, as well as if the knowledge is disseminated back into the culture and move around and understood as fact when it's actually not. Understanding what is true and what is not is a habit of a well-adapted human. Maintaining that in an environment of ease of information is the incredible challenge of our time. Because now we have near-automatic means of expressing ourselves. We can post a video and be seen by millions quickly, should we be able to crack into the algorithmic zeitgeist? 
But can you really know somebody from that? Can you really connect and understand through that medium? Or what about an exchange on some thread out there? The truth is, much of these technologies can be a cheap substitute for what we had in the past. Connection with other people. That we had to be present there for. The Spanish explorers to the Yucatan had to be there in person to get told that their language isn't understood. They couldn't FaceTime with the people on the peninsula. The pace of change and the abstraction away from face-to-face we find ourselves in today can cheapen the respect and attention of the individuals involved in the exchange. And in doing so, respect between the people will go down or at least be altered. This can be an explanation for people getting into rage storms, trolling, or arguing with others, as well as others soaking up the medium to learn a new craft or study, not just falling into this trap that I'm laying out. The culture of mutual respect between people will increase that information exchange, which then can help us conceive of new ideas and technologies to improve us all. Which really is the story of human history. Everything we touch is the result of a similar process. Gutenberg needed the Chinese movable print before him, or at least their invention of paper to do so, or farming in the Mideast, and so on and so forth. And that's kind of how looking back tends to cause us to look forward. Which after this interview, I start to see more and more. We project onto the past what we don't want to see going forward. Which is why it can become so captivating to throw a hold of an individual out of the teaching of our time for a crime we can't imagine occurring again, let alone looking at it in their time. I want to leave on this point. Having no constraint on one's ability to think through that process or any other way they wish to think for themselves should be wholly allowed without external force or power to put on them. Same should go for decisions that one should be allowed to freely make. However, we're humans and we're social, and to perpetuate, that must have some power dynamic at some point. Ah, what a moment to be conscious. With that, my interview with Felipe Fernandez Armesto, where we talk about the role food has on our culture, a view on how to better understand the past, the reality of Magellan you've probably never heard, including a case study, and how you die in history reflects on how you persist in it, how to wrestle with false stories, playing with true bits to leverage for someone's gain, how there's a paradox in our time, is how technology gives us a faster ability to connect, but furthers us from understanding one another. Before ending on some ideas from the most distant past to view out on the coming future. This one is chock full of hits. After that, thank you Felipe for coming on yet again, and for you who's listening. I hope this finds you well on our big, beautiful planet. Hey, real quick while I have you here. If you like what you're listening to, please tap that follow or subscribe, as well as sign up for notifications so you'll know when our next season or episode drops. Also, if you're curious to look at our catalog of all that we have to offer and some exciting things we have to come, please visit us at bandwidth.productions.
thank you, Felipe, again. Um, need no introduction. Uh, your legacy precedes you as well as the other two episodes we've recorded already. Uh, so, uh, well, it's wanna... very nice of you to have me have me back. Uh, sorry to inflict more punishment on the, the viewers. People seem to really enjoy uh, your conversations, and well, I know I do. So, thank you for letting me steal well, some of your time. They're as um, kind as you are. Well, uh, you know, I asked you the the happiness questions both times, and I was thinking about what I can do to ask you uh, a question that's, you know, banal and uh, personal to get started. Uh, and I thought about um, your episode, on, one of your episodes on In Our Time. Uh, and I know I've told you a, a bunch that I like Melvin Bragg. I'm quite a fan of his, his show In Our Time. But one of them you were on was about food. Uh, so I thought I would ask you what your favorite food is. Um. Tortilla Española. Um, everybody, food is a very strange thing. We're, we're all, uh, in a way, very open to new gastronomic experiences. And you can see that in the sort of popularity with which most cultures receive and acclaim, you know, sort of food influences from, uh, from abroad. So, um, you know, the way Chinese and Indian food, for example, has conquered the West and uh, the way fusion food has become a kind of big phenomenon nowadays. But as well as being very open to these new influences on a large scale, individually, we're all very conservative about food, and I think everybody you know, likes the, the food that mama makes. So in my case, especially as I've spent really my whole life outside Spain, um, my whole professional life, my own in formal education, um, I always crave the food of Spain. So tortilla de patatas, which is a you know, potato omelet, um, uh, is the thing that if I've got enough time, I'll make myself. I like that. I, uh, I've never had that, but it sounds quite, quite uh, stupendous. Well, um, it, it, it's, it, it, it is, um, you know, it is like sort of Spain on a plate, but you, you, you have to, you have to, um, um, you have to soften the potatoes very, very slowly and gradually in olive oil. Um, I add garlic, which is not necessarily a um, universal feature of the, of the recipe. And then you pour on the beaten eggs. And you wait until the potato is really good and, and soft. You pour on the beaten eggs and serve it when the Again, there are different types of taste, but ideally you serve it just when, you know, the, the, um, the eggs have coagulated and it's, um, um, it's just the perfect combination of textures of the potato and the, and the egg, as well as of, of, um, of flavors. And if it's got, you know, the oil, and if you add the garlic with garlic, you need to salt it fairly um, liberally as well. Um, you know, you can shut your eyes and think that you're um, you're in the Sierra de Gredos or somewhere like that. It's it's curious uh, how food can do that. The I mean, the sense of smell in general is, uh, can bring you bring memories back sometimes in full color that I feel like is, yeah. is unique to other senses. Proust's Madeleine, which you know, was the taste of the Madeleine that unlocked the memories that fill, you know, the five or six volumes or however many there are of La Recherche du Temps Perdu. Um, yeah, I think um, it, is, it is true that, that smells and tastes are very evocative of memory for most people. 
I, I don't think it's it's universal because some of us are, are, are have our, our memories more readily activated by intellectual illusions, you know, huh. and um, um, and sometimes um, you know sights as well can can uh, can trigger memories. But I think in um, considering how um, how much less use we make of taste and smell, you know, amongst the, the creatures of the world. We're actually very bad at tasting and smelling. I mean, my dog thinks I'm really dumb because I don't go around sniffing lampposts. Um, so, so really, scent and taste play a relatively small part in human lives compared with our visual and aural and tactile um, senses, but they do have a privilege. I think they do have a privileged role in triggering memory. Right, which is interesting. Um, whenever I'm talking to you, I always think about culture a bit more because I think about culture uh, quite a bit, but I know you do as well. So my, my mind always goes to, well, also if I'm, I'm probably recalling that episode more as we speak um, about how much culture is connected with food and and how much it's it's kind of akin to both. And one of the things that's interesting is the, the course of time of how agriculture has come into play um, and then clashing of other civilizations together, much actually in the, about the age of discovery as well, which, which I like to talk about with Magellan. I mean, the age of discovery and filing whole continents changed the cuisine quite profoundly. I mean, potatoes, even in your, what you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, is a, a new world convention and, and how much that has altered cultures into a more, I mean, uh, I don't even know. It's, it's it's changed it completely. I don't even know how to describe what it's changed into a more multicultural, I suppose. Yes, I mean, you know, you can't imagine Italian cuisine without tomatoes, as you call them in the United States, right. um, uh, which, of course, are a, a new world, uh, in part indigenous new world, that even has a Nahuatl name. It was tomatoes, really, tomato. And um, chocolate, you know, can you imagine uh, European confectionery without without chocolate as a new world invention, or um, uh, Southeast Asian food without chilies and peanuts, both of which come from the the Americas. So yeah, it's certainly these ecological transfers that accompanied long range exploration, colonization, um, and empire building transformed. Cuisines unrecognizably and created these these new kinds of combinations that we think of as being, you know, viscerally, unmistakably, essentially Italian or Southeast Asian or whatever. Whereas, of course, they're really quite recent innovations that were only made possible by by what you call the age of exploration. Yeah, and it's and the infusion of them into these. Uh, cuisines is almost the the memory of that exploration itself just kind of encapsulated um well it's it's a bit of a corrective to people who think that empires are only bad you know they are bad they're, they're terrible <laughs> but nothing is so bad that it isn't also good really you know there's there's the the, the 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 there are very few things that humans do that haven't got some sort of admixture because we're all combinations of virtue and vice and in the case of empires um you know, they they did do some good typically i mean 
because the, the they're typically big political entities and the bigger your political entity the more potential there is for long-range cultural exchange and so empires do often stimulate innovations of all sorts not only gastronomic but also in the realms of ideas and technology and political institutions language music art um, visual arts all of these things have benefited from uh, the good effects of what are generally speaking bad bad things which are empires yeah, yeah, no, uh, empires, I, I have questions about that too, which is great that you bring it up. Um, they're, they're not zero sum, I mean, nothing is, is zero sum, but the thing that I always think about when it comes to empire is the safety and stability that they bring, as well as the insulation, safety and stability that empires tend to bring for the people within, within them, um, as well as the uh, you know, reactionary ability of the collected resources. So if there's a disaster that happens at one end, it's able to have resources from another end to be able to come in to prop it back up again and so forth. Yes, if if they don't do anything for their subject and victim peoples, then they collapse rapidly. I, you know, great example the Spanish Empire did a lot for its subject peoples, and it lasted for three hundred years. The Roman Empire did a tremendous amount. Chinese empires very long enduring mainly because it managed to reconfigure so many of its subject peoples as loyal participants in the um, in the empire. So, you know, all of those historic minorities like, you know, the, the Li and the Ping Min and the and the um, and the um, Hakan. So nowadays they just think of themselves as Chinese. And, and, and I think that, that shows that they they responded with investment in the idea of the empire to the moral and, and, and material investments that the empire made uh, in them. Whereas if you get an empire that does nothing <laughs> for its subject, he's like the Nazi <laughs> empire. Which, you know, the Nazis founded a, um, a spectacular empire in terms of its, its dimensions, but it was so morally valueless that it couldn't lost and and um uh, you know only 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 very only very marginal groups within the the nazi hegemony benefited from it and that was mainly you know only in connection with with having an opportunity to make war against their, their traditional um enemies with with german in german alliance uh, and of course, that kind of thing can, can that can only last as long as the war lasts. Right. So the Nazi Empire was doomed by its own failure to serve its subject peoples. Whereas there are other empires that have been relatively successful because they've actually conferred some kind of benefits on the the people they ruled. Yeah, most certainly. Um... I mean, in the case of the in the case of the the Roman and Spanish empires, which are two spectacular examples in that, in a way, you can see the sort of things that work. If you want to make empire work, if you want to attract the collaboration and even the loyalty of um, subject groups and um, uh, their leaderships, um, the most useful thing you can do is invest in economic infrastructure. Uh, you know the. Romans, obviously, are the great model of this, with all those sort of Roman roads. But the Spanish Empire went much further along those lines. In, in imitation of the Romans, they built roads and bridges and aqueducts and, and, and um, 
uh, hospitals you know, on a spectacular scale uh, and created new economic opportunities for the enrichments uh, for the enrichment of the elites whose loyalty they they needed. And although obviously, you know, in all these empires, one of the big problems is a lot of people die. <laughs> That's not a great benefit if you're dead. <laughs> On the other hand, you know, it means that there, there are more resources for the people who survive. And, um, and in the case of the Roman and the Spanish empires, the economic opportunities just increased enormously. And people really did, you know, get rich as a result of being subjects of those uh, of those empires. And I say infrastructure investment. I would say, if you, I don't know whether you're thinking of this, John, or whether there's anybody, you know, watching the podcast who's thinking of founding an empire. But my advice is, if you do, put a lot of money into infrastructural investment. I'll certainly keep that in mind if I happen to be uh, looking to found an empire. Uh, rather rejuvenate an existing one, I think, is, is more my end. Um, which actually, I, I wrote this down, and I, I didn't know, I wasn't sure if we would get to it. It's in my, my extra questions, but we're on the point right now. Um, and, you, and you tacitly were almost hinting at it, um, which is, do, do all empires, in an in essence, follow similar arcs? And do they have to consider certain things? Really, what I'm curious about is, you know, when the mass of, of sapiens, of us as creatures, a mass to that level, do we tend to have the same features arise? Um, and I mean, you, you mentioned some that are like, you know, if you invest in economic uh, infrastructure and, and focus on uh, providing value to the people that are within your uh, um, empire, that it goes a long way. So that seems like it's a, a universal, there are other universal arcs that empires tend to go along. Well, I, I think successful empires can only exist with the collaboration of a significant proportion of their subject and victim peoples. You know, what, what you need, the, the, under the Nazis, these people were called quislings after the, the Norwegian leader who um, threw in his lot with the Nazi conquerors. And every empire has got quizlings, and you need you know collaborators to be you know slightly less um, uh, um, slightly less pedrit of choice of work. Uh, all empires need collaborators, and I think there's usually a sort of critical threshold. If you get enough such collaborators, then you know, you can you can keep um, going. But you need to buy their loyalty, and that's why things like infrastructural investment is so critical for the long-term success of the empires that um, that really have had have experienced spectacular longevity in the past. I think there are other characteristics that empires have in common. In many ways, they're very difficult entities to define, but they're relatively easy entities to profile. And, you know, the typical empire, profile of typical empires, it's obviously got, it, it, it brings together a lot of different cultures uh, under a single political allegiance. It uh, tends to be a relatively large state, at least compared with the states that precede and succeed. I mean, you know, the, some, some empires are very small. The, the first state that we typically call an empire would be Sargon's empire, uh, Sargon of Akkad in, in Mesopotamia, but that, 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 that was perhaps the size of maybe modern Wales or something like that, but, but it was still much bigger than any empire and than any state that had preceded it in the region and any that succeeded it for a long time afterwards. Mm. 
Um, so they don't have to be big, but they have to be big in relation to what precedes and follows them. They typically also have some kind of um, some kind of ideology or some kind of mission, some kind of um, method of self-legitimation, which involves, you know, wanting to spread um, some benefit, some idea. Often it's a religion uh, to uh, its subject. Um, subject peoples. So these are the, these are the, 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 the features of a typically imperial um, profile. And not all empires have all of them, but but um, uh, um, as typically as as is typically the case with 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 the ingredients of a profile, you'll find them very widely diffused amongst the states that we conventionally call empires. That's interesting. Um... Can, I, I had written this down too, actually. So I'm going to ask it then. Uh, can an empire have virtue or be virtuous? Which I, what I'm really wanting to ask with that is, is humans at scale, given time, can they maintain their virtue or is, is there a requisite shared culture that needs to perpetuate in order to maintain it? Well, I think all political life is corrupting the virtue because it's about power um and it's it's um even if you use your power only for beneficent reasons it's still power and it still means you know that whenever you exert it you limit the freedom of the guys on the receiving end so i mean i'm a visceral anarchist you know i've always thought that what <laughs> you really want is you know a world without power relationships but of course that's impossible um uh because if we if we dismantled all the states we'd still have power relationships um among our ourselves you know i mean i would still be um the subject an abject subject of my wife you know and my my PhD students would still do what I tell them, <laughs> even if they think I'm an idiot, because they, <laughs> you know, that's how they're going to, going to get on. So we can't, we can't live in a world without power, and the best thing we can do is to make the best use of it we, we can. And I mean, you know, I think that um, um, most states do recognize that it's crazy you know to um uh, it, it to be evil it's sort of bad policy to be evil well, the nazis didn't have the sense <laughs> to realize that but 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 it's very unusual for um um political leaderships to embrace evil as a policy you know that's something you only find in fiction really the evil empire in that sense doesn't really exist so they, they always set out um to conserve their subjects lives they don't always succeed um they always set out to perpetuate their subjects loyalty just for their own sakes they don't always succeed and as a result you know i mean um um the uh the um, failures uh, and, and you know the sufferings that states inflict, the the misery, the the famines, the wars. These are usually the result of mistakes, not of malevolence. 
And I don't know. I mean, you know, you can look at what's happening in the Ukraine now, and you can say, I think you'd be perfectly justified in saying that, that Putin is um, an evil, or at the very best, a totally amoral character whose, you know, sense of right and wrong seems profoundly warped and perverted. Um, but even he <laughs> um, isn't, you know, deliberately doing something that, is that he thinks is going to undermine his own success by provoking opposition. He's provoked opposition, but he's done it by, by accident, by, by what, well, you know, Talleyrand had a great phrase um, for, um, for what goes wrong in political decision-making when he told Napoleon that what he'd done was worse than a crime. It was a mistake. <laughs> so it's usually not the crimes, but the mistakes of elites that that result in the in the horrors and and, and miseries that we associate with politics gone on. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, and the horrors can be larger the the larger the scale. Um, okay, so uh, yes, questions. absolutely true. Although a, a horror on a small scale is still absolutely horrible for the person or persons who experience it. Oh yeah, no, I definitely. I mean, there's that quote: uh, "You know, the death death of one is a tragedy, and the, the death of a million is a statistic." Um, it's it's individual tragedies are terrible, and, and it could be consequential. And uh, realities are all, only what we see through our own eyes. Um, you know, going, uh, I've been reading way too much Machiavelli lately. Honestly, I've been getting back into reading uh, him. And one of the things that's making me think of, of what you're saying is that inherently in political in politics is vice because it's really about power. Um, is the, the role of a state then in, su in such a way to kind of hoodwink everybody to, to thinking that their existence is that of anything other than power and, and to be perpetuating itself by, you know, making itself useful or beneficial for the subjects, but constantly trying to hide the power vacuum or power dynamic? Or am I being too Machiavellian? Well, I mean, obviously, um, um, you know, the, 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 I, I'm, I, I'm suggesting that the exercise of power in states is usually in, intended as benign. And, you know, when you, when you build a great... Um, uh, um, monument. It might be a, a church. It, it 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 might be a monument of practical utility. It might be something that is, you know, just purely intended to be um, be beautiful. That is an exercise of power, and you may very well have ulterior motives in doing it. Uh, you may be seeking to secure, you know, the patronage of celestial. Um, patrons who may may be trying to get God or the saints on your side if you're building a um, a church, uh, or you may wish to erect a monument to some particular cause that you know is popular with your subjects or with a section of them that you particularly wish to um, appease, uh, or you may want to beautify the environment in order to make people feel better so they're more um, happy with your own rule. Uh, so there may, may, may well be uh, ulterior motives. Um, those don't vitiate the benignity um, of the effects. Um, I mean, if, for example, I were ever, you know, to write a good book, <laughs> um, I wouldn't 
be doing it only for the pleasure of my readers. I'd also be doing it you know, for my own self-satisfaction and perhaps for my own, own um, uh, prestige and, and even, you know, for my own sales. <laughs> Dr. Johnson said, no one but a fool ever wrote except for money. <laughs> um, but those motives, if the book was good, it would still be a good book, no matter how um, self-interested um, and um, morally questionable my motives in, in, in writing it. And I think the same is true of, of political behavior. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, despite uh, the separation, or at least intentional separation, or attempted, maybe even separation of religion from uh, government, which is such a new, a new idea in the scope of uh, what we know of time. Um, perhaps you still can't have the religious uh, desires or uh, programming, if you will, uh, taken out of us. It, it ends up just crapping up again in, in politics, doesn't that? Yes. Well, I mean, uh, um, I don't know. I noticed um, in a recent survey by the U.S. News and World Report, all those surveys, you know, what countries would people most like to live in? Um, thing that caught my attention was that of the the top ten countries in this sense in the world, according to the results of the survey, eight were constitutional monarchies. And I thought it was rather remarkable um, fact, considering how people you know, commonly think that monarchies are a rather silly anachronism and isn't actually any good for anything. Um, but it did strike me that. that one of the monarchies that doesn't feature, it's not a constitutional monarchy, was the um, the Holy See. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that is, of course, you know, the state. I mean, I know that there are there are there are states in the Islamic world that are that you know purport or try to reintegrate um, religion and statecraft, uh, but they don't. They haven't really succeeded. The, the Holy See is, you know, the one example of a state in the world today where um, religious and political institutions are absolutely commensurate. In fact, they're the same. Um, and I was thinking to myself, you know, would, would, would that come in my top 10 places where I'd like to live um, in the world? And I thought to myself, well, in some ways, yes, because it's Rome. <laughs> and, and 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 you know if one wants to go to mass or confession you know you you never have far to go <laughs> um uh, on the other hand um uh i don't know a lot of people who do live in the in the vatican do seem to be terribly unhappy um you know there are these sort of continual um yeah, uh, you, you continually expose, you know, sort of investigations about, you know, any kind of hint of scandal, uh, you know, immediately triggers a sort of, well, I was going to say inquisition, that's a rather unfortunate <laughs> word to use in connection with the Pope, but, um, uh, but it, you know, it doesn't seem to be um, a setup that is conducive to, um, conducive to happiness, and so, uh, although I, I, I often, you know, think to myself, one of the ways around the um, the uh, the failures of politics 
would be you know to put power in the hands of people who are disinterested who aren't really interested in politics or interested in something else like for example religion and yet you know that doesn't really seem to work um um the the people who are interested in in running religions are also the sort of people who are interested in running other stuff and the, this sort of political ambitions you know, it's been, it seems to be impossible to fill it out of the way we choose our our leaders so um so that's a rather long-winded way of saying that i'm afraid i i i i don't think the um uh the reintegration of politics and religion would would help us in the the present world the the american formula separating politics and religion hasn't entirely worked either and it hasn't led by any means to universal happiness but i think it's probably um you know the best formula we can have in a certainly in a, a multicultural multi-civilizational world when no two people even in the same church or communion ever seem to agree about religion anyway yeah no most certainly i think it's an, an incredible invention that uh they intentionally did that in such a way the the founders sort of uh, so to speak um yes yeah, so well of course they already had a religiously plural state right to cope with and um uh whereas um you know back in europe people were still hoping that they could could reunify their, their, their cultures in, in um, a way that was becoming increasingly impossible as religions fragmented ever more. That's interesting. The, the, pull, the pull of that uh, defining, I mean, just the, I think the way that was put, put to you earlier in an episode we were, was the friction uh, between the different uh, politics and cultures and regions of Europe uh, definitely is a huge legacy of it. Um, going back to the, to the kind of age of exploration, if you will, uh, you wrote a book recently on Magellan, um, and I was wondering if you would just introduce Magellan very briefly, or as long as you'd like, and, and also touch upon what you think the legacy of uh, Magellan is to today, and you know where we think of the uh, age of exploration as being so far away, but it's it's relatively recent if, if we really think of the scope of time. And um, I'm curious to see what you think the memory of it still is. Well, I'm slightly reluctant about introducing him because I think he was such a horrible man. <laughs> um, but he was, uh, I mean, he's, he, he's best introduced by way of the myths that people believe about him. You know, people think that he was the, um, the designer, if not the executor of the first circumnavigation of the world. Untrue. He never even contemplated circumnavigating the world. I mean, the idea just didn't occur to him. Um, the voyage that he, well, you know, the great voyage that he he actually led in his his lifetime, ended up in a circumnavigation world after he was dead. But it was never part of the original plan. Um, he's also credited with having transformed the way science understands the planet to transform the, the picture that we have of the world absolutely untrue after his voyage world maps are pretty much you know, the same as they were um before and mcgillan's crucial geographical mistake which was to underestimate the size of the world people went on doing that even after um his voyage 
purports to have supplied evidence that this model was wrong. Um, people also um, think of him as having opened communications across the Atlantic and the Pacific between Europe and the extremities of Southeast Asia. Well, he didn't really do that. I mean, he did, did reach Southeast uh, Asia, reached, reached the Philip as far as the, as the Philippines, but by a route that was absolutely unexploitable uh, and which um, only condemned those who attempted it to near certain death. And I suppose the final thing that people think about him is that he was a great success, uh, that his, his voyage made money, and that's why it launched a sort of new era in the commercial history of the world. Untrue. <laughs> the yeah, voyage made a loss. The idea that it made um, a profit was, is a mistake arising from historians' misreadings of some accounts that date from some years after the, um, the voyage. Um, in fact, his voyage was a failure in every respect. Magellan was a failure in every respect. Uh, he failed in the commission that he had from the King of Spain, which was to go to the Moluccas. Um, he didn't go there. He didn't even try to go there. When he got to the, the latitude of the Moluccas, he actually bypassed them because what he wanted to do was to go to the Philippines. Um, he failed um, uh, in his own objective, because in going to the Philippines, he was hoping you know, to found a great empire. He, he, he didn't. He, he died in battle against um, indigenous opponents. Um, and uh, uh, his voyage was a failure by the most basic calculus, which is that 90% of the people on it died. <laughs> And he lost, you know, all but one of his ships, either to shipwreck or, or desertion. Um, uh, and, you know, 90 or 90% death rate is pretty high, even, you know, for the, the early, um, early 16th century. So however you look at him, he was a disaster. And he wasn't even a nice man, because his, his, his record of behavior includes, you know, such um, uh, um, offences as treason, murder, judicial murder, massacre, arson. <laughs> um, it's not a great um, a record on the side of, uh, of virtue. And you put all that together, this is a guy who's a total failure and also a really nasty man. <laughs> and yet, He's the only one amongst all these dead white male explorers whom people still admire. You know, far more admirable characters like Columbus, who was a good guy. By comparison, you know, people are tearing down his statues and besmirching his, his reputation. Even in my own university, you know, we've covered up paintings of him <laughs> because, uh, you know, oversensitive people might take offense at them. Um, uh, yet by comparison, you know, Columbus was, was, was a great success. He did wonderful things for the world, and he was actually really rather, on the whole, you know, had his faults, obviously, but he, on the whole, he was a, a, a good man who wasn't guilty of most of the things that people accuse him of. Yet we've got, got and, and all the other dead white male explorers, you know, have suffered similar fates in the, uh, in the face of the contemporary 
critics and of jurors. Yet Magellan, who really deserves a bad reputation, is still, you know, hailed as this, this great beacon of modern science. And there are, you know, there are university prizes and programs named after him, universities named after him. Um, there's a whole, you know, sort of galaxy of stars, as well as, you know, lots of species. Um, named after him, and he's still very popular with commercial organizations who appropriate his name in order to try and gild their own often rather dubious activities with an aura of science and benefit to humankind. And you've got to ask, <laughs> why? <laughs> why is Magellan the least deserving of these characters, the only one whom people, you know, still positive about and I find that a fascinating problem that's really why I read the book yeah that's fascinating how quickly did that turn how quickly did he in his own contemporary time and then thereafter go from being a an abject failure was he seen in his own time as a failure was he seen as a success like well quickly did the narrative turn during his lifetime, he had, you know, a, a, a lot of um, a lot of critics, not least because of the the rather traitorous way in which he abandoned Portuguese service and took up service with the King of uh, of Spain. Um, but he, he, it's really, you know, it's, it's after his death that he undergoes this apotheosis. Um, his death was a great career move. I, I argue in my book that he deliberately contrived a sort of heroic style death because by that stage he knew that he'd failed in all his objectives and he also knew that there was no way out because even if he got back to Spain he would have been executed as a traitor because he he'd not only had he betrayed the king of Portugal he'd also now betrayed the king of Spain by breaking all the king's um, orders and and massacring uh, the king's subjects and putting the king's servants to death. So so he 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 knew there was no way um, uh, out for him when things began to go wrong in the Philippines. And I think he deliberately contrived a sort of pseudo heroic way out in which you know he dies fighting against tremendous odds, surrounded by only a few companions on a beach in the Philippines, which he'd selected in spite of the fact that you know in terms of terrain and, and, and you know the, the, the tactical um, uh, disposition of the the ground he, defeat was almost inevitable I mean it was really unthinkable that he could possibly win a battle in the circumstances in which he chose to fight he really choose I mean this was a battle of his own making and his own devising so then he but but he dies a heroic death you know fighting against the odds and, um and the second feature of his death, which made it a great career move, is that uh, he had the stooge, if you like, um, a writer, Antonio de Pigafetta, who accompanied his voyage and who was its sort of official chronicler. He was Magellan's choice of the guy who was going to, to write it up. And Pigafetta, um, who was personally devoted to um, Magellan, who saw him and his master, both as people whom uh, whom God had kind of selected for some great role um, in the world. So he writes up Magellan's life in this extraordinarily positive manner. And it makes me think of Winston Churchill. Remember, Winston Churchill said that he wasn't afraid of the judgment of history because he was going to write it himself. <laughs> 
and and Magellan wasn't up to that. He wasn't intellectually up to writing the history himself, but he had the guy who was. So it's the combination of the heroic end and the absolutely perfect eulogist that projects him into the, the ranks of heroes. Wow, fascinating. Uh, well, he sounds like one smart son of a bitch. He sounds like he did a lot wrong, but he seems like he uh, played the game rather intelligently. <laughs> Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, I, I think that's right. You can do, um, you can do everything right, and end up as a failure if you die badly. But you can do everything wrong and end up as a demigod if you die well. Yeah, it sounds uh, reminds me a lot of Julius Caesar, who uh, was strong enough to at least to write a lot himself, uh, and then uh, maybe maybe knew or at least get himself immortalized in the way he, he died as well. Um, you know, do you know, are you familiar with Gavin Menzies? He wrote uh, uh, quite a few books. <laughs> oh, please. I know, pass me the sick bucket. I mean, for God's sake. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you if uh, most of his claims are uh, just completely out there because he speaks a lot of Magellan as well uh, and, and kind of cocks him up all as uh, being able to know his route and is particularly the Strait of Magellan, he claimed, uh, you know. Right, well, Gavin Menzies, however he pronounces his name, has, as you, I'm sure you know, a, a reputation of threatening to sue people um, who are rude about him. <laughs> so, oh, I did not know that. He's, yeah, he's since so passed. Let me, but... be, let me be absolutely clear. First of all, that what I say is in no way your responsibility and, you know, Jonathan bandwidth, uh, you know, not cannot be sued for anything that I'm about to say because um, you didn't uh, know uh, and didn't deliberately give me an opportunity to tell the truth about Gavin Mingus. Now, the second thing I want to say about him is that he's, he's, he must be one of two things. He must be either a Christian or a charlatan, or both, <laughs> because um, his so-called work is probably <laughs> um, the most palpable and obvious drivel that anybody has ever had the, the immortal right to publish as if it were factual and historical um, information. Uh, and that can only be explained by one of two motives. One is, you know, that he, he was um, exploiting the opportunities for vulgar sensationalism uh, in order to achieve a reputation and fortune that he doesn't deserve, um, or that he's so stupid that he actually believes his own rubbish. Well, I'm sorry to excite such passions. I had no idea. You know, what's interesting about the internet is that you can read about people and you lose so much of the context about them because uh, the, the time has such passed where he's seen as still as a kook uh, and kind of a bit crazy. But all of what you said about his threatening of suing or uh, just how sensational has kind of been washed over time because of the pile of internet rubbish on top of it, you know? Well, you know, people will believe anything. <laughs> the internet has shown us, you know, that, that people will, I don't know, believe the lies of Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. You know, by comparison, the lies, the falsehoods, which I be absolutely fair to him, of Gavin Menzies are far less harmful 
um, uh, and of course, people believe them in in, in some ways and apparently incomparable um, numbers. But I mean, I just you know, just say so that the 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 viewers of this this podcast know the sort of thing that we are talking about. They haven't had the misfortune to read um, Gavin Menzies's work. Um, amongst his claims are the Chinese voyages, which we know a great deal about in the 15th century, and which were spectacular uh, and impressive voyages that penetrated deep into and across the, the Indian Ocean. And we know all about these voyages. Um, uh, he claims that they exceeded the limits that the sources describe and visited, amongst other places, the River Congo, um, Rhode Island, the Amazon, Australia, Antarctica, and sailed back to China through the Arctic Ocean. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you believe that, you'll believe anything. You know, it's literally, absolutely, totally impossible. Um, and of course, you know, there's no evidence to support it. The evidence that um, that, that Menzies book this is all, um, you know, either false uh, or you know just wildly misinterpreted. And I mean, he uses a lot of cartographical evidence. He says that Columbus and Captain Cook must have had Chinese maps you know, in order to, to do what they uh, what they did. And the tragedy of this stuff is that the reality of Chinese history is extremely impressive. You know, I mean, in most respects, for most of the recorded past, the Chinese are well ahead of, you know, my benighted ancestors in the West, uh, in science, in technology, um, in navigation particularly, in empire building, I've already mentioned how successful over an unprecedented length of time Chinese were as imperialists. Um, you know, there's so much in the history of China which needs to be communicated to people in the West so they can fully appreciate the wonders of the Chinese and therefore, perhaps, you know, the menace of the Chinese future. You've got to know how great these people were if you're going to evaluate um, their, possible, their possible continued resurgence in the future. So the, the world has got to acknowledge the greatness of China, but it does no sense to invent a lot of stupid rubbish, which no rational, critical intellect can possibly except because it just subverts the efforts of those of us who are genuinely trying to communicate the truth about Chinese history. So I'm afraid I think, you know, Gavin Mengs is, is a terrible scamp. Um, and, I, you know, I wouldn't care, but it's also, you know, that he's, he's tried to appropriate the work of respectable historians to try and create an atmosphere of prejudice in favour uh, of his own um, outpourings. And that's absolutely wicked and, and illegitimate to misrepresent other writers as if um, they they agreed with him or supported what he had to say. Wow, that's uh, rather unfortunate that he would do that. Um, it's very uh, mischievous. And... But anyway, why did you mention him? <laughs> because of the Straits of Magellan and his claims with the Straits of Magellan. It's a uh... 
It's a rather um, hot internet claim. You know what I mean? That the Straits of that Magellan knew about the Straits of Magellan before sailing through them, um, which I, what I put in my notes was um, how much is this? Well, I put how much is this bullshit, but I, the way I was going to ask it to you was how does this hold any water? Um, Cause well, well, um, in 1514, um, a, an account was published of a purported voyage, which I think really did take place um, in pursuit of a way around or through the New World into what people at the time called the South Sea, and that's the Pacific to us. Um, and that publication survives only in a copy in German in the, in the Bayerische Staatsbibliothek in Munich. Um, that, that account of that voyage does describe something which definitely, you know, resembles the Strait of Magellan um, in very suggestive ways. Um, but that's the evidence. <laughs> uh, essentially, that's that's the evidence. There's also, I, I, you know, evidence of a map made by Johann Stirner in 1515, which possibly reflects the um, information culled by this by this voyage, or at least reported in this source, which shows something like the Strait of Magellan um, at the southern, towards the southern end of um, of the map's representation of the of the New World. But that that that. That, that those two pieces of evidence are probably very closely interdependent. So really, it's only one piece of um, of evidence. And this doesn't connect any former knowledge of a strait uh, or something like a strait towards the the southern end of 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 South America with any supposed Chinese voyages or or input. All of that is complete fantasy. Well, okay, so I, I'm going to go back to the age of exploration, but since we're on here by way of uh, the, I only think of bad uh, adjectives to describe him, but the individual you were talking about um, is, I'm going to come to this and we can come back to another question I have about exploration. So there's this Friar Gaspar de Caraval that uh, wrote a book, uh, The Voyages of the a uh, Amazon. Well, it was really a, a log of a failed exposition into the Amazon. Um, and the question I want to ask you about it is, how can you interpret what is in texts to understand the truth of it versus um, how they talk about it in their cultural time or in their cultural motive uh, context and in their motives? Because, for example, this is another thing that is like yes, yes, yes. But I mean, Carvajal's oh. account of um, uh, his participation in 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 that. Um, expedition down the Amazon is one of a number of narratives that survive from that voyage. Oh, so no, I know. It's very I well know. attested that, you know, we, we can be quite sure that it happened. There's no doubt about that. The trouble with, with Gavin Mengs's, you know, supposed um, Chinese voyages is that they just come straight out of his head. There's no. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. I know. Anybody can respect um, in support of. No, I, I understand. I'm going to, the point I was making with that was to come to, um, in our age, you can, you can get hung into truths and they can get blown out into fantasies, right? And if the, the truth is something that, you know, Menzies took, um, or in the case of what I'm going to mention now is somebody on the internet, right? 
uh, could take a truth that's in a text and extrapolate all kinds of uh, imaginations out of it. Um, like Caraval at, at some point in the book mentions a group of, well, there's two accounts in there that I find interesting, uh, most interesting. One is where he mentions he meets um, pale skinned settlers there. Um, and people in today's time have you know, said there's a lost race of, of people that were there that were there for some time and things like that. But my question is, how can you sort out the truth? Because what he could be describing Caraval could not be what we are interpreting today, because today we want to find fantasies that make sense to ourselves. So how can one make sense of, of history even if they are reading the primary sources and find well, something several, that's salacious. Several of these early sources about the Amazon do describe a world which either never existed or has vanished. Uh, a world of uh, really densely populated banks of the river over quite extensive stretches in which very impressive cities are built largely of wood, but none, nonetheless on a you know, very impressive scale. Um, existed, uh, and yet um, within 20 or 30 years, subsequent voyages along the same stretch of the river didn't see anything of the sort. Um, I mean, whether people people with pale skin, that's a very subjective matter, and, um, uh, you know, what looks like pale skin to, to me may not look like pale skin to you. You can't put any... any um, uh, attach any importance to that kind of, of very subjective judgment. But I think, you know, I think it is perfectly possible that these early sources were recording something that was, was really there and that subsequently vanished because, um, you know, civilizations can be extinguished very rapidly by um, pandemics. Uh, or other natural disasters or environmental catastrophes. And all, it seems to me quite likely that the earliest Spanish explorers of the, the Amazon brought with them those devastating diseases, mother of smallpox, which indigenous populations were unimmunized. And if their buildings, you know, were of wood on the banks of a river, this is, um, you know, in, in the tropics, that's a very destructive environment, and they the evidence could be um, obliterated or reduced to um, you know, insignificant um, bits of wood in a very rapid period of time. So I wouldn't entirely rule out all of this stuff. On the other hand, no one seeing um, alterity, especially you know, seeing an unfamiliar world for the first time, unfamiliar people for the first time. No one in those circumstances sees what is really there. You know, this is very, this is sort of psychology 101. When we see something new, we try to make sense of it by mapping it onto what is already in our minds. And, you know, if, especially if you're, <laughs> if you're traveling down the, the, the Amazon in the 1540s or even in the 1560s, People who were in that situation were, uh, you know, themselves in a very unfamiliar environment, having all sorts of new um, experiences, tortured by um, elements of the environment, especially climate and disease that they were completely unfamiliar with. They were usually starving because um, Spaniards weren't very good at, <laughs> at turning the resources of this unfamiliar environment into food unless, unless natives fed them. They, they tended you know, to be run very short of, um, of supplies. Uh, they also felt defenseless. You know, their, their 
their firearms were useless, their gunpowder was damp, they ran out of shot. All of these circumstances made these journeys very febrile experiences for people. So in addition to the usual you know, psychological obstacles to seeing what's really there, they also have all sorts of other um, you know, reasons that are provoking them to fantasize. And obviously, you know, the, 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 all of these early accounts, explorers' accounts, are full of, um, of fantasies very often induced by, um, uh, you know, very unusual, almost sort of psychotropic mental states. And Columbus has visions. Magellan, towards the end of his life, becomes a sort of religious nutcase. Um, it's it's just it's it, it's absolutely sort of standard part of the job of being a, an explorer in the early modern period to be subject to the sufferings and to new experiences so traumatizing that they actually you know change what you see into what you fantasize or imagine. So I think that there is a lot of rubbish in these in these um, accounts. That doesn't mean that they're all rubbish, or that you can't, with a little in critical intelligence, filter out what is or might be true. I uh, I like that. So my my thought in this this original line of questioning was really about how to understand truth in information, especially because it can, so many things can be extrapolated out of it. And, before you know it, you're falling into somebody's argument or point of view without understanding what is actually reality. Um, and I was really looking just if you had any insight and a heuristic of, of how to understand that. But I'm, in listening to you talk, I wonder if it's that we should always remind ourselves that people are the ones who wrote this or have this information or, or had these accounts and they have their own motives and they live in their own moments and context of time. And that when relaying this back and, and you know, parsing it out in our own minds that we should always remember the context and, and the humanity of these individuals or stories or accounts and come back at it with a critical and uh, yeah, yes, yes, of yes, of course you're right, John. And, and I think the, perhaps the most important thing that you've said, because, you know, it's perhaps the thing that people most need to be reminded of, uh, is um, that one should bear in mind the humanity of the people one's um, one studying, and that's particularly important if one, you know, has a sort of negative view of them, or one thinks that they were they were wicked or immoral. You've got to remember that we all are, to some extent. Everybody is a mixture of virtues and vices, and in order to understand something, you've got to try and you know see the world from his or her perspective and try to understand what he or she thought um, was going on that was was that did did them credit. And that, I think, is the key to understanding one of the most important resources we have for distinguishing what is factual from what is fantastic in the records of the past. If somebody tells a story to his or her advantage, I suspend belief. <laughs> I think, well, you know, this, this, uh, um, you can't trust this. Um, this evidence, because there's, you know, there's clearly an agenda at work. But if somebody tells a story which is to his or her discredit or disadvantage, then I think I'm inclined to believe it, <laughs> because, you know, because the usual motive for lying, which is to uh, make yourself look good, <laughs> doesn't apply in that sort of case. So I'm always on the lookout, I always tell my students, you know, to be on the lookout for the things in the sources which reflect discredit on the writer or on his or her 
pause, and then you're probably talking about something which is true. That's interesting. Um, going back to you know the age of expiration and and uh, the legacy of that, are we do we still see whimpers of that in today? Do you think uh, is the the legacy? Oh, sorry. Of- uh, the legacy of the age of exploration, like Europeans fanning out into the rest of the world uh, and, and colonizing. And um, I know that that's a ten, tempestuous point in uh, our, our time, but I'm looking more of like the idea, the idea of the age of exploration. Was that something that the, the, the memory we have now of it, was that invented? Is that the legacy? Is the legacy of it an invention? And does that still perpetuate in our time? Or was it seen even then as being this bountiful, uh, you know, inter-cultural exchange and, and global proportions. Um, well, of course, you did ask me about Magellan's legacy, and I thought that I'd kind of already answered that. Oh, I, I meant, I'm, I'm talking didn't. more of the... Yes, uh, yes, I realize that, I realize yeah. that, but I just want to go back to, to reassure you that I thought I had answered the question with specific reference to Magellan, because you did ask, ask it, yes. and I didn't turn to it specifically, but that's because I thought I'd kind of dealt with it by saying that he didn't change, you know, people's... Sh- idea of the, the size or shape of the uh, of the world. He didn't co- open up any new commercial opportunities. He didn't set, circumnavigate the world or prove that it was round or any of that other rubbish. So, you know, Miguel's legacy is pretty much zero. Um, the legacy of um, um, early modern European outreach to the rest of the world, of course, is, you know, very substantial. And like everything else, a mixture of good and bad. Um, I think the the people tend to attribute to it, however, an awful lot of stuff that it didn't do and wasn't um, responsible for, especially on the negative side. You know, I mean, for example, um, um, Europeans, Columbus specifically, didn't introduce slavery to the new world. Obviously, you know, we do there. You have to go a very long way back, you know, really, almost also into Paleolithic times to find societies for which we don't have evidence of the existence of slavery. It's absolutely normal, standard, and practically universal. I mean, really, we are quite unusual in thinking that it's bad. <laughs> I, I think we're right, but, but I think we're very unusual. In thinking that it's bad, and even we still practice it, you know, depending on exactly how you you define um, slavery, I think we still practice it a lot in connection with prostitution. I think we still practice it a lot in connection with the in the United States with the exploitation of underdocumented immigrants, who are in effect, you know, in the position of slaves because they are not free to dispose of their their labor and their employers can do practically what they like with them. And we still practice it a lot in other parts of the world in domestic service. And in the Middle East, you know, a lot of domestic service is still um, effectively slavery, even where it's, you know, technically against the, um, the law. I, another, you know, sort of false um, uh, notion that people associate with the supposed um, legacy of um imperialism is that um it was racist well some of it was racist (laughs) um but not all of it and um um in 
um, the Spanish monarchy of the early modern um, period. The, the you know the amazing thing is the the way in which um, people of different um, races um, were able to compete on terms of equality. Um, uh, for many of the rewards that were available um, as a result of the erection of the empire. Um, another um, nation that I think is falsely associated with the legacy of empire is genocide. I mean, people have always practiced genocide. It's one of the most one of the, unfortunately, one of the commonest notions that people have of utopia is of a world free of their enemies. <laughs> and, you know, trying to exterminate your enemies or your supposed enemies is a very common um, form of behavior, which indeed some communities practiced in the New World before the arrival of um, European colonists. And again, you know, there were genocidal empires, and I think the, the early United States um, was a genocidal empire, quite, which, you know, the elite were quite determined to get rid of the Native Americans, either by expulsion or extermination. Spanish empire was the exact opposite. Um, you know, genocide was the last thing on Spaniards' minds and their empire building, the last thing on Columbus's mind because they needed the indigenous population to support the economy without indigenous labor, without indigenous produce. Um, the Spaniards wouldn't have been able to survive. Uh, in fact, they got rather annoyed with nations when they started dying. <laughs> Very inconsiderate of them, you know, to die of all these diseases when the Spaniards did. <laughs> so, um, so, of course, you know, there are many um, um, cruelties associated even with the best of, um, uh, of empires, but an awful lot of the evil legacy attributed to them either, you know, never happened at all or happened in selective cases which aren't necessarily representative of the way empires work in general. In the case of the positive legacies, I think the things that people don't give empires credit for, and I, I stress, I'm not trying to whitewash empires, I think empires are in, essentially evil, you know, because the basic problem with empires is that it involves, you know, one bunch of people being where they've got no right to be in the first place, you know. So, so I'm, I'm absolutely against all uh, empires. And it doesn't mean they don't sometimes do some good. And again, I go back to what I mentioned earlier in this conversation um, between you and me, John. The, the empires serve as arenas of long-range cultural exchange, the exchange of goods, the exchange of biota, the exchange of ideas, the forms of art. Um, and these um, are often very beneficial to the people who live in those empires, and they're often very beneficial in the legacy that they they transmit to the world. So those early modern empires, you know, really made the modern world possible by multiplying the sources of food available across the world, enabling the planet to sustain a much higher level of 
of population, uh, enriching those cuisines that we mentioned, but more importantly, feeding millions and millions of people for whom otherwise there would have been um, no prospect of life, let alone of survival if they actually, you know, got to be born. Um, these empires also, you know, communicated um, benign ways of thinking and 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 living, especially you know, in connection with with religion. But there were two things in the Spanish Empire that indigenous people were particularly receptive to and seem on the whole to have welcomed, which the Spaniards brought. One was the Roman alphabet. I think it's very remarkable how uh, even indigenous civilizations with their own writing systems tended to switch pretty rapidly to the Roman alphabet when it became available to them. No way. But obviously, much more importantly, the second thing that they were very receptive to was Christianity. Um, and I think there are very good reasons for that. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're, if the religion that it's displacing, um, you know, contained stuff like human sacrifice and cannibalism and war, a religion which at least purports you know, to be peaceful and something, does have, you know, a, a lot to. Um, uh, commended. And then these empires are very creative in other ways. You know, you get new kinds of religion, um, syncretic religion. You get new kinds of music. You get new languages, Creole languages. You know, empires are guilty of, you know, um, uh, eliminating a lot of culture, but they also create uh, a lot of, of culture. And on the whole, we don't seem to give them the credit for the things that they did well, and we just denounce them for the things that they did badly. I think if we want to respect the truth, we have to do both. We have to denounce them for the things that they did badly, and the evil that lived after them. But we have also, you know, to acknowledge that they also um, played a very positive role uh, in the lives of their own subjects when those subjects survived, and uh, in, in giving the world, you know, this very rich, um, multicultural world that we inhabit today. Yeah, I, I appreciate a lot of what you just said. I mean, I think what you just said about the truth of empires is, is really the truth of, of anything, which is to uh, really understand it. You have to understand all sides of all dimensions of it, the, the good, the ills, the ugly, the beautiful, um, all therein, because that, that's the whole. The whole is all the complicated parts. Yes, I, I think I, I fully endorse what you say. I, I would I would add, I think it's also very important um, to remember that if we if we only you know sort of sit in judgment on the past, we're doing what we think they did wrong, <laughs> which is you know not treating other cultures on their own terms. It's very important to treat you know every human culture on its own terms and not to judge it from one's own perspective, because then you end up, you know, thinking that, that only what you do is right, only what you think is right and everybody else is wrong. And our, gener our, our rising generations are in danger of doing that about the cultures of the past. You know, when you, when you judge, you know, whether um, um, these explorers were doing good or, or even you've got to judge it in their own terms you know, and not judge them by your, your own standards, just as if you're white, you, you, know, you shouldn't judge non-white cultures 
by your own standards or or if you're you know um uh, a, a European, you shouldn't judge Africans or East Asians uh, by European standards. You should look at the, the norms of their own cultures and judge them according to how faithfully um, they respect them. So it's really important, you know, not to be judgmental, but to be open to the possibility that even people whom you hate, dislike, think are evil, regardless of your enemies, actually, you know, may have something positive to praise and even something to teach you about yourself because without the humility of recognizing that you might not be right about uh, about um, everything you're never going to improve you're never going to learn you're going to start you know by removing the beam in your own eye before you start criticizing other people in other cultures and other times yeah uh, i like that that's brilliant is that is what you just said there, one of the many things that history can help us and tell us about our collective future that, you know, the importance of, of meeting others in their own terms and judging them by their own present moment and what it took, the humanity that it took to get them there? I think we might have talked about this last time you were kind enough to have me as, as your guest. I, my my view on, on this is that um, uh, I, I, I don't want history to have any justification <laughs> I, mean, I, I think if you want to do history do it you know because you like it and, and because you know you feel improved by it you feel your life is enhanced by knowledge um of the past uh and you know for me being a historian has been a life enhancing experience not least because it's been a very humbling experience. Nevertheless, if you do want a justification for being a historian, it is that it it does, you know, my, my phrase this is it does make a science of sympathy. It does teach you to suspend your own norms and to try and others understand other people according to their own lights. And I think that if you can understand people in the past who were so different from us, you know, particularly that some of those indigenous American cultures that that um, Columbus and Magellan were some other you know, explorers and conquistadores of the era encountered. Many of these cultures were so strange with their practices of human sacrifice and and uh, uh, and, and cannibalism and uh, their um, you know their extraordinary. Um, religions which were literally, you know, untranslatable into anything that, that Christian missionaries could even begin to understand. Um, uh, a, a people who who's, who inhabited an environment that these Europeans were quite unfamiliar with and who therefore, you know, sort of ate food and had diseases that they, they didn't know about. In all these, these respects, they represented a challenge to the understanding of people who encountered them in the past. And an and even greater challenge to our understanding because there is no chasm of culture as big as that which divides the past from the present. So I think the justification of history is that if you can begin to understand those guys who lived in the past, then you know, you're better equipped to understand people who differ from you in the present. 
And that's above all, really, what the world needs is mutual understanding. That's the basis of peace and of dialogue. And therefore, you know, because dialogue leads to progress, it's the basis both of peace and of progress. And we need it if we're going to survive. Yeah, amen. That was great. That was well put. Um, I mean, I, that's such a great way of, of perspective uh, that, I mean, I, I do think about this, actually. I never put it into the context of and the, the such so plainly as you did, which is studying the past often is remarkable to me how similar people, even as different as living in China, are actually more similar to me than people in the past and the, the shared connection that even cultures that can seemingly seem so strange to myself. Like the first time I, I stepped off of a plane in Asia, I remember the smell being so so different. Just the smell of the air was different. Um, let alone the smell of the water. I never knew, you know, you know, the smell of water coming out of a faucet or whatnot. But all of those, you know, aspects are just aspects of modernity that, while are are strange to me in the spectrum of what I'm used to, is actually far closer to uh, any depth of understanding that I could have to any of the ancient world. Like I, I love Rome. I, I know I'm, I'm sure I've expounded this to you enough that so you know this as well. But the the thought of walking down the street in Rome, you know, it, it had to be such a disgusting affair. That you know, we I may fantasize of what it would be like to wear a toga and, and walk down the streets, but the, the reality is I'd have to be using stepping stones to go over the sewers that were open, and, and it's just such a, a different visceral experience um, to, to understand the past and help us understand our, our present and find a dialogue to exchange. Yes, I mean, you know, in some ways, um, um, you know, I. I feel that I can understand Pocahontas better than I can understand Putin, you know, or, or, or Temujin is easier for me to understand than Trump. <laughs> so um, uh, so uh, um, uh, it is amazing how in our own world in which so many of our cultural norms are so very widely shared across the planet, how much, nonetheless, you know, we disagree with each other to the point of mutual incomprehension and bafflement. And in some ways, I mean, I don't know whether I'm right about this, but in some ways, it seems to me that this is getting worse. Uh, and that our ability to understand each other um, is actually being eroded by the ways we use to communicate with each other. And um, yeah, I think in the United States today, it's very hard to represent, to, to, it's very hard to resist the impression that we uh, have a society so deeply divided that mutual opponents um, are absolutely incapable of comprehending each other's point of view. And we can see this in issues like, you know, uh, various, particularly in issues like, um, uh, you know, our understanding of democracy, our uh, um, understanding the role of the constitution in balancing the elements of government, and above all, in matters um, of morality, because um, you know, there's a, 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 a painful, pitiable lack of comprehension between those who want to uh, reform abortion laws to make more, more, um, more lax, and those who want to reform abortion laws uh, in order to make them more protective of the lives of, of babies. And the lack of, of rational dialogue <laughs> across this, this divide drives one absolutely nuts because you just think, <laughs> surely we can do better than this. Surely we can have you know, civilized 
dialogues that can lead to a workable um, society in which we 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 can both respect um, uh, each other's um, views and and do our utmost to create a society and a set of, of laws in which those those conflicting views are accommodated as much as they possibly can be. That's the goal. That should be the goal. I, I think uh, the conundrum of the time, insofar as I see it, not biased because I'm in tech, is how much technology is is usurped it. And by, and by that I mean, you know, information or media technology. Um, you know, it's it's not. You know, if I was to look at this in in so far as like a game theory, it's not in the interests of of politicians to necessarily even act like they understand each other because there are much more shared understanding between their constituents and their motives and their wants and their desires than they like to play off because it's in their interests to have a, an enemy uh, to have someone yeah. to disagree with and to have the most energizing issues in which to get their constituents to make sure that they vote for for them uh, well you're right really of course people you know some people are you know viscerally conflictive and they like conflict and they love to have um enemies but i just feel the moment's reflection <laughs> that in terms of one's own long-term interest it's far better to have friends and you know it's far better to have peace uh than it is to have enemies and um and conflicts um, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I think a, a world without tensions and a world without disagreements would be very boring. Indeed, disagreement is essential to progress. Everybody agrees with everything else, everybody else, and nothing will ever get done. <laughs> nothing will ever ever be improved. Um, but it, it seems to me that you know there's a big difference between civilized, productive, peaceful disagreement and the kind of um, world that we are increasingly living in where there is no prospect of dialogue because the level of incomprehension is so so profound and there is a paradox here because we have greatly improved our technologies of communication and yet the degree of mutual understanding that they lead to seems to be ever more exiguous and I, I, I give you a, this is maybe this is a silly example, but it just gives you an example from um, a class that I'm trying to teach. And every every year, nature, I try always to teach new things and to devise new courses. But one course that I teach every year is a course based entirely on indigenous language documents from Native American sources in the colonial period of the Spanish Empire. Um, I use a very important course because it's absolutely focused on the indigenous point of view. We don't look at any you know, Spanish sources. We only look at the way indigenous people saw the world that they were in as subject communities of the Spanish monarchy. And uh, one of the documents um, that we've been looking at um, this week is about um, uh, uh, the Spaniards arriving in 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 Yucatan in the Maya um, world in the in the 16th century, and this indigenous document uh, describes a purported dialogue which took place between the arriving Spaniards and the natives, and of course they didn't have any common um, language, uh, and the Spaniards said, "Where are we?" And the natives, in their own language in Yucatec, said, 
um, we don't understand you. And the Spaniards, mishearing the word for we do not understand you, thought that the place was called Yucatan. <laughs> and so literally, Yucatan is a, a misrendering of the Yucatec for we do not understand. <laughs> and yet, you know, in spite of that, um, indigenous and Spanish um, uh, people got on amazingly well in that area the early um, colonial um, period and, uh, you know, with a few exceptions, it was, um, you know, a remarkable, remarkably peaceful period. And it seems to me to be amazing that people can understand each other better <laughs> in the 16th century against that background where they don't have the technology, you know, for instant translation. And, and we've got all of that technology and we've got all these instant global communication systems and they don't seem to help us to create either mutual understanding or the peaceful and progressive world that might ensue if we could achieve it. Yeah, and... You know, I wonder if the truth in that paradox um, goes back to something you said the first time we talked, which actually I think about quite a bit, which you said that comfort is the enemy of well-being. And I, I wonder if the convenience and the quickness that you said of our information exchange now is, well, I mean, it quite flatly is cheapening the experience. I mean, you and I sitting across from each other in this, you know, Zoom chat is is much closer than a text message. I can understand way more of the context of our communication than if it wasn't a text message. But um, yeah, how often are we even connecting, communicating, you know, in this manner versus face-to-face -face versus, um, you know, them, you know, the Spanish standing in their uh, rather uh, overclothed attire for the, the tropics uh, and uh, the native dress of the individuals next to it. But that's exchanging so much more information than just a, a text bubble, which is mostly what we do now. Well, what you say is very interesting, John. I, I, I mean, I think obviously this is pretty obvious, Point, just just a prefatory obvious point that the, the reason why we can communicate isn't because of the technology that en enables you to be um, you know uh, uh, scores of miles um, uh, away whilst I'm um, you know sitting at Notre Dame. Um, it's not the technology that enables our dialogue. It's the fact that um, we approach it in an open-minded spirit. And you know you 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 put to me questions um in the um uh, i hope not in the, the specta expectation that i'll produce good and wise answers at least in the hope <laughs> you, you, you put your questions to me in a hopeful spirit and i reply to you with total candor and i'm willing to say things you know nasty things about um people who i think are charlatans <laughs> And 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 also risky things about people who most people hate. Um, I'm, I'm willing to talk to you in great candor because um, we both know that we're conducting our dialogue in a, an open-minded spirit of mutual respect. So that's the critical thing. It's not the technology. It's the attitude of mind that's critical in any act of communication. And I strongly suspect that. Uh, the problem with our very um, sophisticated technologies of communication is that they give us the illusion that understanding is going to be easy. <laughs> and maybe that's the sense in which comfort is, you know, is, is, a, is a negative influence. If, once you start getting complacent about anything, you really undermine your opportunities for success. Because only when you're really making an effort 
that you can really make progress. And I guess those Spaniards and Maya, although they didn't understand each other very well, at least to begin with, um, were making the effort. <laughs> they really wanted to understand um, each other because the Spaniards wanted to see what advantages they could get from establishing relationships with these people. And the Maya were exactly the same. They were thinking to themselves, what use can we make of these strangers? So they, were make, they, they didn't have very propitious technologies, but they, they, were, they had the right disposition. They were making a big effort. I think we just need to make more effort to understand each other and not to be lulled into a false sense of security by the illusion that our very capacious technologies make it easy to understand each other. They don't. Understanding is always very difficult. I, I, I once thought of writing a, a history of, of misunderstanding. I once gave a course of lectures on the history of misunderstanding at the Complutense University in, um, uh, in Madrid. And I think one of the, the things that I learned as a result of being interested in misunderstanding is that it's much more common than understanding. I, I, it's, you know, the easy thing is to misunderstand each other. To understand each other is really relatively hard. Yeah. Need to make the effort. Just like how you, you've, you've said before, how uh, good ideas are much more difficult and much harder than bad ideas. Bad ideas are, are much easier, I, I guess, in the same context that you just said. Um, you know, I, I really enjoy, and I mentioned this last time, I really enjoy your history of ideas, uh, lecture, uh, lectures from recorded books, and, and just your overall work of, of calling out ideas. Um, I rather like calling out the obvious because I think there's a lot of virtue and utility in calling out the obvious. Um, so you calling out ideas, I think, is great because ideas are are the obvious. They're the things we kind of forget that, um, you know, governments or or anything that we've been talking about, empires, those are all just ideas, um, and we're kind of skirting around it. And I wonder if you have any thoughts other than maybe understanding and effort and, and empathy and and whatnot of what are some of the ideas needed for the next hundred years or the next centuries, not necessarily the ones that are pervasive, because that's kind of the the it's it's hard to escape. Uh, everyone talking about the pervasive ideas right now, but um, what are the ones that are needed? Well, thank you for the question. It's always nice you know, to get an opportunity to plug one's own work. <laughs> the, the book that you kindly just recommended is is really just, I mean, it's, it's just a, a collection of very, very, very short essays. You know, each discrete essay on one idea. I have now written a, a continuous narrative history of ideas, um, which incorporates, um, you know, a lot of that material one way and another, but which approaches the subject as if it were possible to write a coherent, continuous history of the way um, ideas um, have changed. Um, and, and, and that work is called Out of Our Minds because, um, you know, very often the very best ideas seemed, especially when first divulged, to be so mad as to give us the impression that not only do the ideas come out of our, our minds, but they make us seem out of our minds when we out of them. Um, and, and in that book, I, I, I start very early with um, pre- Homo sapiens, you know, and asking, well, how did those guys think? I, 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 I go 
great deal. I don't think any other historian of ideas have done this. I, I try to go into great detail on the cognitive science of thinking, trying to understand you know, how we have ideas in the first place. Um, and I, you know, the evidence for that, I, I try to, to, to encompass, you know, the whole human past in a sense, even the pre-human past in the sense of going back beyond the origins of Homo sapiens. And I also try to reconstruct from, from archaeological evidence and from mm, analogies with evidence unearthed by anthropology or disclosed by anthropology. Uh, I try to reconstruct some of the, the very earliest uh, human thinking. And I, I think, you know, that in a sense, the ideas that are the most important in the history of the world are the oldest. <laughs> because they've been around for the greatest length of time. They've been influencing us for much longer than more recent um, ideas. And we shouldn't fall into the fallacy of thinking that our thinking or thinking of recent times is better than that of people hundreds of thousands of years ago or many scores of thousands um, of years ago, because the evidence is that, you know, they were cerebrally equipped with all the cognitive faculties um, that we have today. And actually their brains were slightly bigger. I'm not sure that's, that's relevant, but they certainly had all our cognitive equipment, and they were capable of thinking of anything. And I think that some of the ideas that they came up with were very, uh, very impressive. You know, they, they, um, uh, um, uh, I, I'm very fond of the idea of God. I think that wasn't the sort of childish and idiotic you know, notion that a lot of um, rather belligerent atheists like Richard Dawkins take it for. It's an extremely subtle and complex notion, which as far as we know, no other creature except humankind um, has been man has managed to think of. So I think that's a great idea. But I think I, I might have told you before that my very favorite idea is the idea of nothing. Because in a way, I think that's the starting point of everything. It's such an incredible achievement of the human mind, as far as we know, this happened a very long time ago. Um, to think of nothing, because it is literally unexampled in experience. And it's also, you know, conceptually, very elusive notion, because as soon as you think of it, it ceases to be nothing and becomes something. Um, and I, I, in, in my way, I'll argue in the book, an awful lot of very positive thinking came from the appreciation of this essentially negative um, notion. And then obviously, you know, you can, you can mention more obvious things like um, language. I, I think I... I I, I, I've already said that misunderstanding is very common and it's the deficiencies of language that are mainly responsible for that. Nonetheless, despite its deficiencies, language is another fantastic resource that we've been able to use as, as humans. And this goes back, I mean, you know, it's, it, it, we don't know how far it goes back. I think it probably goes back far longer than the, the evidence that, you know, it's at least 50,000 years and I think very much older um, uh, than that. So these are the really precious building blocks of the whole of the rest of, of um, the history of, of thought. Uh, and we should appreciate the geniuses, you know, the unnamed geniuses amongst our very remote 
ancestors who had the brilliance first to formulate them. Yeah, I, I always appreciate your uh, thoughts on those and the, the sanctity of, of some of these foundational ideas. Um, is there any of those either foundational ones and, and, and much more ancient or, or more modern even ones uh, that given the, the, the pace of technology or the current moment we're living in, the, um, the scope of change that seems to be kind of ever present, that would be useful ideas for us going forward in the future, either ones that have, have emerged going past, or do you think there's new ideas that need to emerge in order for us to be kind of in, living in a more successful world going forward if we're, if we're looking well, from the I, past? I, I certainly think you're right that you know, change uh, is the universal characteristic you know, of everything that we know about. Um, uh, and one of the great achievements of our remote ancestors was to imagine changelessness, you know, to imagine eternity, to imagine infinity, to imagine God, to imagine those, those universal realities which, which perhaps exist independently of their instantiations and which you know, exist in an ideal world that doesn't um, change. All of those were you know, it was just fantastic triumphs of human imagination just to think of such um, such things because they they don't exist in experience. We we our ancestors didn't think of them because you know they had experimental or sensory evidence about them. It was pure genius that that led them to be able to conceive of them at all. Um, and I suppose, therefore, that being able to understand change would be a great blessing for the world if it were possible. It's very difficult because, because we're enmeshed in change. We can't step outside and you know, sort of look at it objectively. Uh, but I did write a book about this as well called A Foot in the River, which is a book about the history of how people have thought about um, change. And it just, you know, it just has baffled <laughs> all the best minds that have tried um, to explain. You know, I mean, why don't we live in a more stable, if not totally stable, cosmos? Why is change so prevalent? Why does it appear to accelerate uh, as time goes on? What would be the consequences of that in a future where the pace of change becomes unmanageable, intolerable? And all of these are problems that I think it behaves us at least to think about. Because, you know, we are facing um, um, extinction. Um, we're facing extinction not only from the threat of a changing environment, but from also from unpredictable effects of technologies of our own creation, particularly genetics and robotics, both of which handled badly, you know, literally could lead to the extinction of humankind. And considering how, how a short time we've been on this, this planet for compared with other species and considering the changes that uh, we've registered in our behavior, at least, if not in our physiology over the time we've been around, the danger that we're going to be a short-lived species must be very considerable. We really ought to be thinking about um, about that and thinking about, well, A, do we want to perpetuate 
our existence because the brutal truth is we haven't been very good for the planet that we've been on. <laughs> Most other species, except the ones we eat, um, haven't benefited in the long run from the the way we've we've treated them, the way we've handled them. Uh, we haven't even been very nice to each other on that level. Um, so our record isn't terribly good. Well, do we want to perpetuate that record? Do we want to survive in the future? Most people seem to assume that we should or, or, or we do. Um, and if you do want to survive in the future, how are we going to do it? Because, you know, most of what we do isn't very conducive to our own um, long-term survival. And broadly speaking, you know, Evolution suggests that very complex organisms such as ourselves don't tend to be very long-lived. Um, so, so in terms of you know species survival, so I, I I I guess those are the things that we ought to be bending our minds towards. Um, whether there's a specific idea that we ought to think more about, well, I I think we should think more about um, humility. Um, about our own vices and guilt, how we can improve on an individual level and then improve our own communities before we start being nasty about other people, including other people in the past. I think that's very important. And I, that's in a way, I suppose, why, you know, because I teach or try to teach at the University of, of Notre Dame, and I am a Catholic, and, um, you know, I, I one of the the reasons why I'm a Catholic is that I find a religion that encourages me you know, to, to go to confession and be even feel, you know, shame at my own guilt. Actually, it does have the means of equipping me to make myself, at least to try and make myself um, better. And so, you know, I, I think that probably the, 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 the idea that's going to be most helpful to us is the idea of God about thinking about you know, how we stand in relation to eternity and to infinity, uh, and how we're going to, uh, you know, work in the world um, to bridge the the gap that separates the reality we know from the reality that we can only imagine or grasp conceptually. And I next month I've got to give a lecture about G.K. Chesterton at Notre Dame's London Satellite. And as a result, I've really been sort of reading all the things by Chesterton that I've never read before. And this morning, I read a very little known story of his about a knight uh, whom he calls um, Sir, Sir Laverel. I guess the name is meant to suggest, you know, the sort of French verb lave, so it's meant to suggest purity and cleanliness. And it's also meant to suggest truth, because of course, ver also, you know, is a particle which in many Romance languages is associated with words for truth. And it's also meant to suggest rock. So, you know, it's meant to suggest um, you know, a strong foundation, you know, for building something worthwhile. So this knight is obviously, you know, kind of clearly represents a lot of. Of, of goodness, um, but he's a, he's an outlaw and he's he's a wild rebel and he and a criminal. Nevertheless, he's got one virtue, which is that he always goes to church. He's <laughs> 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 that terrible guy. But at least you know, you one thing you can say to him, he 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 doesn't behave like a Christian. At least he goes um, to church. Nevertheless, he becomes the hero of the story. 
Because in he alone confronts this terrible monster that's destroying the world. And this monster is clear, you know, to, 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 to Chesterton was sort of monster of capitalism and industrialization. Um, and he, he conquers the monster, uh, not by um, becoming a, you know, monk or a, a hermit and, and leaving the world and sort of just praying for it. He confronts the monster by entering the world, by dwelling in the monster's belly, you know, like Jonah in the world, and converting the monster from within. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think that's a great parable for how, um, however much we may feel that the world is a, a, a dangerous and destructive and hateful place, the best thing we can do is, you know, to try to work from within it to make it, uh, to make it better. And I, I, I mean, I find religious inspiration a great help in that connection. It's not necessary in many, many wonderful people uh, achieve far more than I ever could by, by working within the world without any um, religious presuppositions. But, you know, uh, um, that's the task that I think one's got to, uh, one's got to face, because we'll only, if we, if we do perpetuate the species, if we do, in that sense, save the world, it will only be by operating on it from, uh, from uh, within. The grace that we can pray for may get us to heaven. It won't perpetuate our survival of species on on um, uh, on Earth. Yeah, no, I think I think that there's so much truth in, in what you said. From um, you know the the paradox of of pondering reality uh, in through infinity and in through something that's larger and more transcendent than ourselves that you know, we pale in comparison as inconceivable to us can help us better understand the present moment and what we're living in and the, you know, the destructive patterns that we may be doing and, and patterns within ourselves that we may need to change in order to better ourselves. And in turn, that's really the only way to better the world. Well, thank you very much, Sean. I'm very grateful to you for saying that I've said something that seems to you to be true. Um, and I guess um, probably... Um, it would be unwise to continue the conversation to the point where you, you discover things that are, I say that are untrue. Um, but I'm very, very grateful for the um, the opportunity to talk to you um, uh, and your your viewers and listeners. Um, again, I wish you um, and them all happiness and success for the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much, and thank you for your time. I I'd love to be a fly in the wall at GK Chesterton. Uh, that sounds like a lovely course, and uh, yeah, we can go ahead and stop it here. <laughs>